0: This is the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk about airline contact centers with an expert in that field. We also talk with a Hollywood pilot and aerial coordinator, widely known for his work on Top Gun Maverick and other major blockbusters. Then in the news, Boeing and Airbus are both having narrow body delivery problems. A new U.S. aircraft carrier reaches a major milestone. A new avionics market report has some good news. And the French BEA reports on brawling pilots, as well as crew performance after an A330 engine leak. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 714 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year. And of course, he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft.
1: Hey, it's Max, middle name, just in time, Trescott. I, of course, (laughs) ran into traffic here this evening, but happy to be here just in time. Yes, well, we're glad you made it because
0: uh, this episode, this week, David Vanderhoof and Rob Mark are both off, uh, engaged in other things. So we have kind of a small crew, but we do have our guest this episode. That's Justin Robbins. Now, he spent his career in customer experience and contact centers and worked at companies like Network Solutions, Intercontinental Hotels, Grizzly International, and Hershey Entertainment and Resorts. Now, Justin's true expertise is in contact center quality assurance, training and development, and workforce optimization. He's widely recognized as an expert in the field. And Justin leads UJet's corporate communications, customer marketing, thought leadership, and product marketing programs. UJet is a company that provides a cloud-based call center application that integrates with customer relationship management, or CRM, solutions. So why is that interesting here? Well, because customer experience and contact centers are are vital to airlines these days. So Justin, welcome to the Airplane Geeks
2: podcast. Max, Max, thank you. It is great to be here. So corporate communications,
0: customer marketing, thought leadership product, is that actually your job title?
2: Uh, my job title is Corporate Communications and Evangelism, but the way I think of it is um, everyone who's responsible for telling our story. thats My background is as a speaker and storyteller, and uh, when I think of it today, it's its really who is responsible for, for sharing the, the message of what you jet, does and who we are.
0: All right. That sounds fascinating. We're going to learn more about that coming up, but first we're going to start off with a little bit of aviation news from the past week. Max T., are you ready? We're ready from the West. Our first story, actually, it's a series of stories. And we have something from uh, the Motley Fool, Boeing's problems mount. Also from simple flying, Boeing is removing engines from built 737 MAX inventory amid supply chain problems. And then from flight global is recovery at risk from a broken supply chain. So what we see here is that both Boeing and Airbus are being significantly impacted by supply chain issues. Uh, notably, engines. And this is an issue that both Pratt & Whitney and CFMI are having. They're behind their deliveries. And as we <laughs> gather from the, uh, the title here of, uh, of the articles, Boeing is planning to actually take engines off of previously built 737 MAX airplanes and install them on new production airplanes. That's kind of crazy. And it's not that easy because you can't just take the engines off of a 737. Otherwise, it's going to sit on its tail. So you actually have to produce counterweights, oftentimes just a block, a big block of concrete to hang off the, wing, uh, the wings uh, to provide balance for the airplane. Boeing just can't seem to catch a break these days, Max. And uh, taking engines off of uh, parked aircraft is, well, it's just an extreme measure.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. And I wonder if you have any insight into this, because I would think that the three Max is a pretty new aircraft. Uh, most of them probably are, have been unparked and are back in the skies again. Where are these parked airplanes coming from that they have engines available on that they can pull off and put on new airplanes? Well, that's a good question. In fact, Boeing has
0: uh, reportedly 290 737 Max jets in storage and about half of them were designated for chinese customers but china's aviation authority has not yet recertified the max so those aircraft still sit there so there's an engine uh, issue and it's you know it flows down the supply chain structural castings are a problem A lot of the uh, component parts, a lot of the raw material parts uh, are uh, made with titanium or other materials that are oftentimes sourced from, guess where, Russia. So the embargo there has an impact. It's significant. Boeing is delivering about 31 737 MAX aircraft per month. Pre-pandemic, they were delivering 52 per month. And of course, uh, Boeing and Airbus manage their production by working to a certain production rate, so many aircraft per month, and they try and they maintain that cadence of that fixed number of aircraft per month. Um, and it can change over time as uh, conditions warrant, but they try to keep it up at, at that constant rate. So this is a major issue on the uh, on, on the issue of titanium. There's a report by Deloitte that says that prior to the sanctions on Russia, that Russia supplied 50% of the titanium used in aircraft. And they're also that major producer of things like nickel, cobalt, and vanadium that are, that are necessary. So it's a good series of articles. They uh, look at these uh, issues from a couple of different perspectives. And, of course, we'll have those in the show notes.
1: And I would say that supply chain has just been an issue in many, many industries. For example, I was just talking with someone who does uh, remodels uh, of uh, condominiums, and his uh, uh, let's see, lead time now for cabinets, I believe, is six months. You know, something that in the past, hey, you know, you could get within a matter of weeks. Uh, I picked up a. Uh, a relatively new aircraft uh, recently, and I was told, oh, by the way, you know, it was shipped without this particular camera, which will be added onto the airplane uh, you know, later on. N- not that it mattered, because it's a camera that I, frankly, almost never use when I'm flying these particular type of uh, aircraft. But it just shows how uh, supply chain issues are so pervasive; they're impacting all of us everywhere. And I think anybody who goes in the supermarket knows that it's kind of a, a random walk as to what's going to be missing on the shelves any particular week. So. Yeah, clearly the, the pandemic uh, messed with our internal systems in a way that I don't think any of us really expected, and it's still taking time to recover.
0: And you're right about it affecting so many industries, almost all of them it seems like. And I, I'm really curious to see how the economies respond to this, uh, this this situation. I think it became obvious and very clear that manufacturing methods, the processes and all, as well as the logistics side of it, uh, have uh, become or are more sensitive to disruptions than people maybe realized. You mentioned just-in-time when you came, Max, but uh, just-in-time manufacturing, you know, the Toyota production method, one-piece flow, all of these things that are uh, that have been designed to drive waste out of production systems uh, has also driven the the buffers out of production systems and so when there's perturbations in the in the supply things just stop there's there's no alternative
1: yeah, for sure, we're getting more tightly coupled systems, and when you have a like you said a perturbation, those tightly uh, coupled systems that reverberate throughout the entire system. And in the past, the the extra work and process, the extra whip that might have been piled up in a factory somewhere, hey, that became the buffer. You know, you had a couple of weeks of supply sitting there, so it didn't matter if your supplier was a week late. Boy, when those buffers are gone, uh, those shortages just propagate through the entire system. So it's amazing. If you look at an aircraft, and I. I don't know how many uh, you know parts are on the on the bomb, the bill of materials list, but you know, probably over a hundred thousand. And you need all one hundred thousand of those parts to ship a Boeing. You know, all it takes is one piece to be missing, and you're not shipping a Boeing.
0: You know, I just recently saw some numbers on that on the part count, and uh, I, I really hate to try to rely on my memory, but I think the seven three seven was in the several. Hundreds of thousands of different bill of material part numbers, I, I think, and the seven eight seven, as I recall, I should really check this before I say the number. But as I recall, it was over a million uh, individual part numbers, and and of course, you know, you have something like a jet or particularly an engine. If you don't have every single one of those parts, you know, you don't have a functioning uh, a functioning product.
1: No, it's kind of hard to take off a seven three seven on just one engine.
0: Yes. Or if an engine—we always used to say, you know, in the engine business, you could be missing one nut, and that could prevent you from shipping an engine. All right, well, let's move on. And it's too bad David's not here. Uh, In uh, Stripes.com, the nation's newest aircraft carrier, the Enterprise, reaches a milestone. So uh, this is uh, about the USS Enterprise, which is a name that's been reused— many times, even in the Navy. And this is a Ford-class aircraft carrier being built by Newport News Shipbuilding.
2: Interestingly, I have interestingly, my neighbor is a, a Navy captain who's on one of the new ships also being built and was at a Newport News for quite a while. Ah, excellent.
1: Yeah, that's the Tidewater area of um, Virginia, which includes uh, Norfolk, for example, and uh, oh gosh, um, Williamsburg and uh, Jamestown, all that area right there, Tidewater.
0: This thing is uh, obviously quite large, over 1,100 feet long, 100,000 tons, uh, being Ford Class II nuclear reactors. And the thing that I was hoping David would be able to talk about are the electromagnetic catapult. So this is different than the steam catapult that would normally be, well, normally previously, historically uh, been used to drive the catapult. But this is electromagnetic. You know, that's pretty high-tech. Another aspect of this aircraft carrier is that unlike uh, most prior carriers where the blueprints were all paper, um, here they're all electronic. Uh, In fact, you know, 3D electronic. They call it integrated digital ship building. But the milestone that they're talking about, you know, I thought that would be was getting ready to launch or something like that. No, they've laid the keel. I guess that's the first major milestone. We have a keel for the aircraft carrier for the USS Enterprise. But these things take a long time to build because they're talking about completion expected by 2028. So, uh, you know, we talk about a lot of parts in in a commercial airplane. Think about, you know, the bill of material for an aircraft carrier. So, 2028.
1: And one of the changes in the the build process i'm not sure if it applies to this particular ship but i've seen for other ships they're now using modular sections whereas in the past you would basically you know add part by part to uh, to a ship like the uh, the enterprise under construction now they'll actually build sub modules that might include uh, multiple decks uh, a subsection and uh, just put put some of these together and that speeds up the process so I'm not sure if they're doing that uh, with this, but it's interesting uh, evolution, kind of like uh, some of the uh, modular homes. Uh, you can think of that kind of technique as being used for some of the ships these days.
0: Yeah, fascinating. All right, uh, we have AEA unveils second quarter 2022 avionics market report. So AEA is the Aircraft Electronics Association, and uh, Rob pointed this article out to us. The second quarter avionics market report, it shows worldwide business and general aviation avionics sales up 11.7% for the second quarter of this year, 2022, compared to the first quarter. Uh, But that's the eighth consecutive quarter of increasing sales. Uh, That sounds good. Now, we were talking, was it last episode, about how numbers, how statistics can be misleading depending on the timescale? So I immediately started to think about Okay, so we're talking about 2022, and we're talking about the sales going up, but what do they used to be? Well, so I I found some more numbers in the same report, actually, which says that for 2021, which was the last full year for which there's numbers, that total sales for uh, avionics was $2.367 billion worldwide which is up 6.5% from the previous year. But the previous year, 2020, uh, the sales were down 26% from the year before. So when it looks like sales are looking healthy this year, 2021's numbers match. Well, you have to go back to about 2017 to get to the same, the same level. So uh, things have uh, obviously gone down with the pandemic and are still... Starting to come up, I think maybe the most valuable statistic here is that it 's the eighth consecutive quarter of increasing sales, so that that pretty much indicates a good trend line
1: Well, there was one other thing that happened in two thousand and twenty that affected that, and that is that the requirement for ADSB out came into effect, I believe on January first two thousand and twenty, which means that the prior year was just a banner year for avionics manufacturers. Uh, pushing out uh, avionics into aircraft to try and beat the deadline. And so a lot of people had uh, installs that they had planned all along uh, tied into that. So if you're planning to upgrade your avionics in 2020, well, maybe you did it a year early because you had to get your ADSB done at the same time. And so that had a a negative effect on sales in 2020. And then, of course, the pandemic came along. So, yeah, 2020 definitely had uh, two things working against it, but it's good to see things bouncing back Uh, the report for uh, general aviation aircraft sales is also just out so for the second quarter of 2022 second quarter sales on average are up around nine ten percent it varies slightly pistons versus uh, turboprops versus jets but they're all actually within uh, a percentage or two of each other which is quite surprising Uh, so that's been a a good upturn uh, and again, uh, some of the manufacturers had tough years in 2020, mostly because of the pandemic. Uh, but in general, the pandemic long term has benefited sales because a lot of people concluded, you know what, I really don't like flying on the airlines. <laughs> if I just go out and get my private pilot's license and buy an airplane, I won't have to fly on the uh, the airlines. So that really has been a big driver of uh, sales over the last 18 months.
0: Yeah, and it'll be uh, interesting to see if how many stick with that. Uh, either because they've gotten a pilot's license and uh, have purchased an airplane or, you know, utilize utilize an airplane with their license, or people that uh, are now, uh, um, you know, making use of charter airplanes or other aircraft of that sort, whether that sticks or not, how much it reverts back.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right, because I think there will be some people that figure that, oh, guess what? Getting a pilot's license and aircraft ownership, a little bit more work than I had anticipated, and some of those people may just kind of fall out of the process. You know, there are trade-offs with everything. It's great not to have to go through TSA, but now you're going to have a whole host of other things that you need to do to manage your aircraft throughout the year and to uh, stay proficient as a pilot.
0: So, Justin, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but uh, we, of course, talk about how economic cycles impact commercial aviation and uh, of course uh, you know if you're in a peak you know that it's there's something's going to happen and there's going to be a recession or something and a dip and when you're in the dip you know it's going to get better so you see this this cycling it's very characteristic of the industry in terms of your business and the customer contact center um, aspects of it do you see impacts like that based on the, the economy or is it pretty is it pretty steady or do people get airlines become more interested in this topic at certain times and less interested in others? Do you see that?
2: You do and it, it depends on the nature of, of the contact center. So if if I'm thinking about the uh, reservations right in this case where you've got consumers who the work of the contact center is based completely off of demand it's also tied to in some cases revenue if it's people who are canceling or making changes then you interacting with a, a person is costing that airline money every time we have an interaction so you think about it in terms of where are you going to be cost sensitive at a time of potential economic downturn? You're immediately looking to what interactions cost me the most money. Why do they cost me that amount of money? And how do I make decisions around either getting rid of those things or making them less for the business to um, to handle? Right. Sure. In, in terms of automating or, you know, what, whatever cost cutting measure. So, yeah, a 100 percent across really any type of contact center is going to see the same types of cycles play out.
0: Yeah, and I imagine with, with the pandemic, with COVID, and where demand for uh, commercial flying just shriveled up to almost nothing, airlines uh, obviously were looking for whatever way they could to reduce their costs and, and all. With fewer customers and therefore fewer trying to contact um, the airline, there must have been some pretty significant cutbacks.
2: Yeah, you you definitely saw extensive furloughs, and um, now now it's really been a tension point of, you know, those employees who had to figure something else out are now reconsidering what they're doing and how they're doing it as demand has taken a significant shift, right, in in that time. And now it's a different tension point of, you know, people talk about this idea of the great resignation, and really it's, Hmm. you know, for, for contact centers, it's all these employees who we're We're cut from a from a cost savings perspective that now're like, well, maybe maybe I'm going to go after something else
0: yeah i I've sidetracked this a little bit. We have a couple more news stories to to talk about but um, um but while while we're on that, do most employees that support contact centers uh, at airlines anyway are they typically working from home or in a big office building call center?
2: Uh, honestly, you—I you, mean—in the past two years, you've seen a pretty significant shift to at home. Yeah,
0: yeah, I would think so. All right, a couple of stories uh, that involve Air France, and um, these don't reflect all that well on Air France, do they, Max?
1: No, but you know, every airline at some point or another has a a story that doesn't reflect well on them. So we're not picking on Air France; it just happens that we've got uh, two stories that came in around the uh, the same time. The first one caught my attention because the headline said Air France pilots suspended after brawling in cockpit. Now, <laughs> of all the different stories we read about airlines brawling in cockpit, I think that's a new one. Ed, do you remember prior stories of? Crews coming to blows in the cockpit?
0: Not coming to blows. We did have one not too long ago where there was some kind of a disagreement between the pilots and uh, one of them departed in a huff, but I don't think there were any actual blows thrown.
1: Oh, well. So the story on this is that there was a a fight uh, between the pilot and the co-pilot after the co-pilot refused to comply with certain instructions. It doesn't say what they were. He was uh, then grabbed by the collar and possibly slapped by the captain. (laughs) The the fight was resolved after a flight attendant intervened and separated the pilots. Well, good. Good to hear that there was an adult in the room. It wasn't either of the pilots, but it's good that there was an adult in the room. But uh, La Tribune uh, magazine in France uh, talked about this, and they mentioned in the context of several other serious safety violations that had occurred on uh, Air France aircraft uh, in the past. And they talk about the crew of a... A-330, which did not shut down an engine uh, when there was a fuel leak, and that was uh, against the uh, the standard uh, procedures uh, for the airline. And interestingly, it's an aircraft that had been uh, grounded uh, during the pandemic for some time uh, and then had come back into service. And during that time on the ground, it had its engine removed and put back in. There were a couple of flights before this uh, particular uh, incident uh, flight occurred Uh, But the aircraft was, I believe, in uh, Africa, headed for uh, Paris-Charles-de-Gaulle Airport on the the last day of uh, 2020. They were about uh, 35 minutes into cruise at flight level 380 when they noticed that the fuel level was 1.4 tons lower than it should be. Now, that's a lot of fuel, uh, and there was no uh, evident problem with the the engines. The uh, captain left for a rest break and instructed the first officer and relief pilot to monitor the fuel 20 minutes later when the captain came back the discrepancy was now up to 2.1 tons of fuel so there was a lot of fuel uh, missing somewhere so they suspected a problem with the left engine they began their fuel leak procedures which required the engine to be shut down But the French uh, authority, BEA, says the captain deliberately chose to leave the engine running, so he did not follow the required procedure for shutting that engine down. Not only that, the decision was not called into question by the other pilots. Historically, uh, that's actually been kind of a classic problem with cockpit communications in the days of the past. The captain, Whatever the captain said went, and people rarely would contradict that. Now, in our modern day, using crew resource management, they're expecting uh, co-pilots and other people to speak up if they realize that something is not being handled the way it should. Uh, That didn't happen. And what they point out is that the decision not to shut down the engine created a significant risk of fire. Uh, because, uh, you know, having all that loose fuel around in the engine somewhere, uh, you know, increased the chance of fire. Uh, And then when they went to divert, they had a choice of uh, two airports in Africa. One was 250 miles away and one was 520 uh, nautical miles away. Well, they chose one which uh, showed that it had 2,800 meters of uh, runway, but it turned out that the runway was actually shortened about 400 meters less than that. And then it turned out that the ILS, the instrument landing system for the preferred runway, was out of service. So they chose to land on another runway with a tailwind, and they landed with uh, a uh, nine-knot tailwind component, which is certainly acceptable, provided you have enough runway to do that. Now, they had not updated the aircraft's uh, flight deck system to uh, mention that they were 400 meters short. And the uh, aircraft went into uh, its overrun protection system and during the uh, the braking, the brakes reached I didn't know they could get this hot six hundred degrees c that's I know pretty, I mean, I've never heard of brakes being that hot That's before. how you
0: get a brake fire <laughs> yeah. and when you've got one of your engines leaking fuel that's yeah, not a four. that's not a smart thing I mean they also said that when they landed, both engines were running, and the left hand engine, which I'm pretty sure is the engine that was experiencing the fuel leak. Uh, it wasn't shut down until three minutes after they landed. You've got hot brakes. You've got an engine leaking fuel like a sieve. That's It's crazy.
1: Well, it was the last day of uh, 2020, which means that uh, that was the first year of the pandemic. The pilots probably had not been flying nearly as much as they normally would. And uh, frankly, the uh, the accident rate increased in uh, in 2020 uh, there were fewer flights, and yet there were just as many accidents, which tells you that on a you know per per hour basis, the number of accidents rose, and that's because pilots just weren't getting the experience that they needed, and this may be an example of that.
0: And the BEA reported that the uh, the cause of the fuel leak was a flange on a main fuel line, and uh, the the maintenance that you mentioned, Max, that had been performed was at uh, Heiko in Chamon. And um, the BEA says that reassembling this fuel line is a little bit tricky. And in fact, uh, GE emphasizes some risks associated with uh, the the reassembly if you don't correctly position the flange. And uh, that if you don't, they said that GE says that tightening bolts can temporarily give you a seal, but vibrations will or can loosen the bolts which would lead to leaking fuel which looks like exactly what we had but I think the bea sort of sort of captures it in this uh, in this report they said uh, that these occurrences meaning that all of these things that have been happening with Air France suggests that there is a certain culture among some Air France crews which encourages a propensity to underestimate the extent to which strict compliance with procedures contributes to safety. <laughs>
1: You know, that's a really interesting point. Uh, procedures are designed for a reason, and we may not fully understand why we're supposed to perform a particular step in a procedure, uh, but unless we you know, really know something counter to uh, that and have some uh, you know, good insight, really should follow all those uh, procedures. And there certainly have been some uh, recent instances of uh, crews that have not followed uh, procedures with uh, disastrous results. There was a crew somewhere, I believe in India which was flying a jet, I can't remember if it was a Boeing or an Airbus, uh, but they found themselves high and fast on final during the pandemic, and rather than go around, which they're supposed to do, the captain just set up oh, my controls, and he did a 360. I mean, this is not a procedure taught anywhere in the airlines, and the reason we know about it is because he crashed in the process of doing his uh, 360. Aircraft got slow. So, yeah, it's just so important that we follow our training and follow the procedures, Uh, trying to innovate on the spot, coming up with a new procedure that, uh, you know, is not recommended and taught. That's just a recipe for disaster.
0: Again, we're speaking with Justin Robbins from ujet.cx. And again, Justin, welcome to the show. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about airline contact centers, kind of scope it out? When we talk about that, probably everybody has in their mind what that might encompass. But um, why don't you kind of baseline us on that and talk a little bit about, too, uh, who are these contact centers for?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Max. And, And it is great to be here. So when I think about explaining a contact center as the lowest common denominator, it's uh, a point uh, between a business connects somebody who has a question or need with a resource that can serve or meet that need in, in some way, shape or form. So when we think off the cuff as consumers, maybe what is that contact center in general? It's often it's a 1-800 number that that is serving us in terms of a, a brand or a business. And so for many people, when they think of Airline contact centers—they're thinking of the people that they're going to interact with when they're planning to book or navigate something to do with travel plans. But that is just the beginning of what that could be for. It's—it's um, it's often internal-facing. If—if we've got support systems or teams that we need to be working with, and that could be everything from you know how we're managing personnel to how we're managing internal IT systems. It's simply that connection between again a person who needs something and somebody who can. Serve serve that need. And, you know, again, customers, employees, it could be partners, it could be uh, contractors or, or other suppliers. Um, really, it's infinite. And that that when I when I got really into contact centers, that was often the, the misperception is people like, oh, wow well, we're not a, we're not you don't understand. We're not a contact center. It's like, well, do you do this? We do. And do you do it this way? We do. Well, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, if, I think it's a duck.
1: Mm-hmm. Now is that because contact centers have a negative connotation? Were they seeking to call themselves something else? So
2: if we go back to the the early days of how did how did contact centers or in that time call centers get started? It was the mid 1950s, early 1960s, and technology said that hey, prior to that, if you contacted someone, everyone had an individual number. Resources were distributed. Even if we were in the same office, we all had our and it was expensive and it was inefficient. So technology made it easy. If we pooled resources, it's it's essentially it's this idea of the powerful pooling principle is you put a bunch of people together and have one number, one way to contact them. Not only will they be more efficient, but it's it's more effective for the business to do that in terms of now it's, you know, one point of failure or one point of success versus I, I don't know. I dial this number and maybe I get max this time and maybe I get other max the next time. And, <laughs> right now, the two yeah. shall meet yeah yeah
0: yeah well, you know when evaluating a process or an organization, I think it's oftentimes useful to ask what are the performance metrics for that organization or that department or or whatever, because it tells you oftentimes a lot about what drives them and what objectives they're trying to meet so um when we when we think about contact centers for airlines. Do they typically have some kind of performance metrics for
2: the organization? And what are those like? They do. And and, and there are probably seven big buckets that a whole bunch of other metrics fall within. Um, you know, quickly thinking about those, one is around forecast accuracy, which is this idea of Uh, how, how many people are going to contact us? What are the reasons they're going to contact us and how much time will it take to serve that? That's how they figure out, Hey, we're, we're, we're going into the, the number one day of the year for when people book holiday flight and they know that the average flight's going to, it's going to take how much time to book that ticket and how many people will call from how many different places for, for, right. So those types of variables helps them figure out an accurate forecast, which is, one of the most important parts of of a contact center leader is that piece matching resource to demand. Yeah. Right. If you think about it that way Um, from a, from an agent standpoint, then it's this idea around schedule fit and adherence. So if I said that, Hey, Max, you were scheduled to be at the contact center from 8am to 5pm today and take breaks at a certain time. That's all based off of expected volume, right? I'm expecting, so I'm going to be watching that agent. Are they, at their desk, available in a state where, hey, one one of the maxes picks up the phone, somebody's going to be there to to respond to them or chat, whatever it would be. Uh, other things beyond that that are less tactical, and now start to think about bigger impact, uh, contact quality and resolution. So, uh, like a, a common metric would be first contact resolution. Can we solve that issue for the customer the very first time that they contact us, so they're not going? If 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 you think about the, the typical traveler today, maybe I'm spending some time in my airline's app. I might've gone on their website. I might be follow, you know, following them on a social account. I'm, there's, there's all these places. And so I wanna make sure that I'm really, really good at understanding where they go to and how do I most effectively serve them wherever they show up with whatever need they have, right? So that it's a low friction experience. That, that's, that's again, one of the focuses, how do I reduce friction for that customer employee morale, customer satisfaction. You know, I, I think you would expect them to have metrics around are our employees feeling good about their job? Are our customers happy with the service? The The bigger driver, I think, for contact centers, though, often comes down to strategic value. And, and that can play out one of two ways. One is around the kind of budget conformance and cost per contact, which is very kind of an old way of thinking. For people who've been in contact centers for a long time, it's like, if you get too focused on cost, it'll be at the sacrifice of the the customer's service or experience. And we've seen that play out, too, especially in the past two years. But then there's the broader uh, strategic impact that the contact center can have. If If you think about the interactions that come through, whether it's a mobile app or a phone call or a chat, Customers are, are talking about everything and anything, and it could be everything from, hey, I just got off of this flight and I had a really great experience with uh, a, a flight attendant who I want to tell you about. Or, hey, while I was sitting there, I happened to notice that one of the engines was leaking gas and maybe maybe somebody <laughs> should have done something about that, right? That type of insight exists, and, and so often contact centers are very limited in their ability to to uh, curate and act on all of that data.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point because as, as uh, technology has made it easier for people to give that kind of input, that kind of feedback, or have those kind of questions, or, or whatever the reason is, they're um, looking to contact the company. That results in it must in an enormous amount of data, and how you process that data, how you tell the difference between, okay, this is an immediate problem that one of our customers had, we need to solve this now, versus um, another example could be that, okay, this is an interesting piece of feedback that we don't need to act on it maybe right now, but it's it's information that we want to collect and, and accumulate.
2: Yeah, that and that is, it, the, the data problem, not just within airlines, but contact centers in general, the, the data problem is typically one of two things. Either they they know where the data exists, uh, but they can't get to it or they can't effectively interpret it. Hmm. Or the data exists in so many places, they have just a, a, a piece of the picture of what's actually happening with that customer, with that trend. And that, as you can imagine, I mean. From a broader trend standpoint, that's easy for me to to spend and look at over time. But if, if I have I think about what happened to me a, a few weeks ago, I was in a I was in Jackson, Wyoming and, you know, small regional airport. We had an issue with our aircraft so much so that uh, tech had to be brought in from a different location and. In that time where there is you know an absence of information, you've now got people not just standing at the desk to talk to someone there, picking up their phone, doing things to try to find an answer, and the lag between what is happening on the ground and someone at that 1-800 number, wherever they were located, that, that creates a real tension point for customer who doesn't understand why you don't have an answer for me right now about what's happening on the tarmac that I can look at.
0: Hmm. So when I think of contact centers, I think of me contacting them. You know, it's maybe unidirectional or it's initiated from me, from the customer to the company. But is there a two-way? Is there a a push from the other direction that becomes part of the contact center function or is that something else? So in other words, in a case where um, a situation is arising – And the airline is smart enough to to know that, okay, uh, we need to get word out to our customers. Or if they had that information, they would be a more satisfied customer. Uh, Does that all come through the the call center function or is that sort of a
2: separate thing? Can and should, and Max, what, what you just exposed is the Holy grail for contact center leaders today, because what they live in is a, a state of reactive management. Mm. That is by and large, they are inbound based off of all these events they have to react to. And, and fundamentally the, the contact center leaders who are, again, and this is, this, this goes across industries that are trying to be strategic, that are trying to make a, a real impact within their organizations are or recognize that if we can get to this idea of proactive service, being able to look at that data and anticipate and address Max before he ever has to contact us, not only does that make you feel great, but it makes us look good. It's it's a, a workload that we can better anticipate. Mm. And when we can better anticipate it, it also helps us conserve costs as well. So, so it becomes a win-win and that it's economical and wise for a business to pursue that. And it's, it's great PR because what customer doesn't want to say, I didn't have to worry about it. They knew it was a thing before I did. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, I'm certainly enjoying the push messaging that they're doing. My latest flight, I got a text message after I had already looked up the gate that said, oh, guess what? The gate has changed. And I, I was headed to the wrong gate because, you know, that's what I read on the board before I stopped to get my, you know, Starbucks and snack. And, you know, 15 minutes had gone by, but poof, there was. Text message that said, guess what, Max? You would have been heading in the wrong direction. So that kind of stuff is, is really nice. Now, I'm curious. You talked about people calling in and uh, describing uh, in the call center, hey, this great experience i had with a flight crew today that kind of surprised me does that really happen i mean i would have thought that most calls to the call center are you know problems to be resolved not hey i wanted to let you know i had a great flight i would say that it doesn't
2: happen enough but you would be you would be um hopefully delighted or maybe uh, uh, surprised a bit to see that it does get shared and often it's through surveys, which I think in part is why it is important for businesses to have a good approach to not just wait for people to come to them to share something because typically when they choose to do that, it is because they have an issue. Um, but the, the organizations who are doing it right are saying, how can we go out to everyone who flew with us to find out what is going well and what can we you know, recognize and, and reinforce within our organization?
0: So the method of contact must have changed over time, obviously, I, mean, I can remember before Twitter. Twitter, I can remember before Twitter, and when Twitter started to uh, be used by many people, uh, not every airline necessarily was uh, accepting it at the same rate that it was being um, being used. And, uh, and and then they picked up. So, I mean, it's it's sort of dynamic, right? Today it's Twitter, tomorrow it's Facebook, tomorrow it's, you know, the next day it's something else. Is it difficult to kind of chase the communication methods over time?
2: You know, here's the interesting shift that happened there. If we look up from the contact centers getting started in the, the mid-50s up until about 1995, it was nothing but phone calls, you know, back office stuff, fax, email. That was when the... The pace of, of contact center evolution really started to accelerate because, you know, then we started to see email get brought in and then web based chat started to come in and then we had the social channels come in which it wasn't just one it was like you know four hundred thousand of them and everyone has a different one that they want to use for a different reason and you need to be at all of them right uh I, but then then i think the real shift and the important one and you know i know people can't see this but i pick up my phone right now because this is i think the the bigger change in how how consumers interact with brands because now it's not just my phone and my email and my social but it's also a web app that now if you're especially in travel if you don't have an an app for people to integrate their loyalty and their travel agendas and and all of those things that, right, it right you you seem out of touch and all of those things and the general mobility of it that i think has been the bigger trend and challenge for for organizations is how do we reconcile not five channels or 50 channels, but how how do we think about how all of that comes together? No matter how many there are, you're going to use more than one. And we've got to get really, really good to that point earlier. If I'm going to ever proactively serve you, forget that. If I'm going to reactively serve you well, I've got to have a really clear kind of single view on who you are, where you've been and where you might want to go.
0: And you need to be able to respond to those changes, right? You don't want to have to rebuild the back end when some communication medium or method
2: comes along. Well, and that, that it often was this, this Frankenstein approach, because again, same channel for 50 years, the technology that was built to support it was that. And, and then it's like, okay, we're going to introduce one channel. That's fine. We're going to add on us uh technology to handle email, but then wait, another one in two years, another one in six months and businesses. I mean, no business can burden the amount of technical debt that, that type of, you know, velocity of change uh, created. And so you know to, to use the point of you know in an aircraft like the plane is shuddering now that's that's where most of these organizations are at things have been past end of life it's not doing the job that that it's intended to and that's why for us as as customers with so many brands we feel that right we feel that shaking of this is not connected it's like they don't actually understand me i'm having to repeat myself 18 times there's got to be a better way, right? Got to be a better way.
1: I'm I'm curious. You've brought up uh, the proliferation we have of ways to communicate. Do you have recommendations for customers who are traveling and they've got to reach their airline? Are there times when it's better to use Twitter, times when it's better to use the phone? Or do you have any general recommendations as to you know, how to choose which method to contact your airline?
2: So. I, and as a researcher, what I've seen is I mean, by and large, we, we want to help ourselves, right? We want to self-serve. And I think the, the, biggest roulette game that we play as travelers is not knowing which method is going to get us the fastest response. And, you know, I've seen, um, there was actually one airline in the past who they on their, their Twitter page, one that, you know, really was in the the spotlight would actually have a real time uh, thing that changed on their Twitter that said, Hey, we're currently responding to all tweets in this amount of minutes or seconds. But most most channels don't do that and most brands don't do that. But what I what I think is ideal here to the point of like, I should be able to go into my app and I should be able to see for my airline. Hey, if I'm going to call in, this is probably how much time it would be. If I want to chat right now, this is how much time it would be. That level of visibility, most most businesses aren't providing to their customers today. That's where I think we should put the pressure. You know, Max, where to, to get to your question of if I'm a consumer right now, and a brand doesn't respond to me in my most preferred channel, I make it visible. I usually do go to social media because that, to me, is an escalation channel Hmm. because I tried something else and it didn't work. So now maybe if I call you out on it, you'll try to save face for me.
0: Yeah. I imagine some people who are maybe frantic to get to a solution will, will try multiple channels um, at once, you know, I'll tweet it. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll send them an email. I'll do this. I'll do this.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It, it absolutely. And, and this, this also creates a attention point for contacts and release who so like, if I introduce a new channel, Hey, last time I did that, somebody told me I was going to have fewer contacts. And all it did was create another path for people to try to get to me at the same time. Yes. We don't have that problem. If If we get service right, the reality is though most of us don't get service right, and so we add more channels and we just create, you know, another tangle in an already really knotted situation.
0: Hmm. So, one of the things I guess that uh, Ujet is uh, has been uh, doing is uh, bringing the cloud to to this whole uh, whole topic. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what's different about that, what value, what does the cloud bring to this concept?
2: Yeah. And it's, and it's not even just the cloud, right? So, so if we think about why did, why did businesses start moving to the, the cloud over the past, you know, decade or two? Uh, it, it was really a part about infrastructure. It was part about taking costs that were typically, you know, CapEx and moving them to, to operating expenses. It, it you know, the, the idea of sub- subscription services makes it easier for me to, to, you know, pay for some of these things and, and flex up and down you know, that, that was kind of the original attraction of the cloud It's like, Hey, if I don't have all these servers on site, it's now a better situation for me in terms of management and, you know, some of the it things associated with that. What happened initially as businesses did that is they just took all of those on-prem technologies and they just, they just took the servers off of the, you know, the airlines headquarters and they put them in, in a closet, you know, down the road from Max Trescott, it's that's that's kind of what they did. The two challenges that we have thought about in terms of um, this problem at UJet was a: what is the the tension point that's falling short for the the modern consumer, and uh, a big part of it is that that piece around mobility, and not not just the fact that you know my expectation of service is is sitting here in my pocket anytime, but but to that point, it's like if customers are using apps to interact with the brand, yeah, they probably do expect that if I'm going to want to call or chat or interact, whatever it is with that brand, like there it is in their app. And yes, I should be able to see how much time I'm going to wait between those interactions. Right. So, so that, that was part of our, our, founders vision initially is like, how do we, how do we really think about that, that mobile consumer, the thing that got me excited as a contact center, a former you know, contact center leader, and as a just a, a, a data junkie is that fundamental problem of you've got all of these systems that want to store data on their own. Every technology company tries to be an IP company, right? They want to get all of this data because of what they can do with that data. You just approached it from the standpoint of, look, most businesses, or if I'm an airline, I've, I've typically got a source of truth that's my CRM. And the, the data, if it's within my CRM, I shouldn't try to create that data somewhere else. I should look directly within that CRM and a write whatever I'm learning. P- put that information directly there, but also then pull all my information from that because then I don't have delays in having to go from other systems. I don't have to try to reconcile whose his you know whose version of the truth is right. And and that for us was a distinct difference that other other you know, people that, that we would compete against, they didn't take that approach. And so when we talk to businesses about how do you make sure your information secure, you know, we've got a great story around data security because we don't store, you know, any personally identifiable information in, in our system. We're, we're putting it there. And then that enables us to this service point of, uh, it's not another not right now. It's the first, how do we actually start to untangle it so that we see one, one piece of thread there?
0: So uh, we've seen that recently um, Delta Airlines signed a contract or a deal with uh, Amazon Web Services, AWS. They're they're trying to uh, improve their level of customer service and support, I guess. What are the things that uh, a Delta Airlines or or someone else should be thinking about when they're contemplating making a move like that?
2: Yeah, you know, to me, just moving to the cloud isn't, that, that, that I think is uh, yeah' we're, you know if I'm a business I should be thinking about how I move to the the cloud the the real question is like what what is the impact and the type of experience that I'm trying to create and and what will the right kind of not just cloud but kind of grouping of solutions what what experience will that enable me to to, to provide you know if I were thinking about them you know I I am acutely aware of what's happening today in terms of uh, channel switching within brands. Uh, there's there's a piece of research that's gonna come out you know shortly after uh, we've released this podcast that you know what what we've found that the types of self-service channels that businesses are putting out for consumers today are not cutting it. Most most consumers are frustrated or find that the the self-service channels in particular, which, you know, airlines, they want to do that for, for, for many reasons have, have customers self-serve. Uh, you know, there was, there was one stat, uh, one statistic that we had that I think it was a, about 80% of people said that their interactions with automation chat bots, uh, increased their frustration. <laughs> and it was another high percentage who said it was just a waste of time. Wow. You know, so, so I, I think that, Someone saying that, hey, we're going to do cloud transformation is one thing, but being very aware of there's lots of businesses that have moved to the cloud and all that they did was take a disjointed, complicated experience. And now that's sitting on the cloud. Hmm. So so thinking about those channels and and as we talked about earlier, that that I think is, you know, kind of a, a key part part of this. Um, the the other thing that I is personal to me as a as, you know, someone who, who, who does travel with that airline is, you know, what is the potential for this to actually create um, a greater weight and greater complexity for me uh, because my issue doesn't get resolved. And you know, there's a number of things that could, you know, cause that to happen. But now I do have to move to another channel. Or I'm trying to get service in a way that's just not supported today. That that I think is the bigger tension point of this. Moving to the cloud is not that's not just the, the resolution there. It's really thinking about where are people really wanting to interact in and does it all pull the data together? That, that to me is the, like the geekiest way that I think about this, this from a contact center standpoint is like, do do you actually get good data? Because most contact center leaders I would, I, I would talk to would say, no, they, they don't. Hmm.
0: So when uh Ujet is, when you guys are talking to uh, potential customers for, of your company, what are you offering? What is the value that you're providing? Are you coming into, say, an airline and saying, you know, okay, so you have something in place now, but we can replace it with something that's uh, completely different and and offers much more value to the to you and to your customers, or is it in, uh, incremental improving uh, what the airline has now? What does UJet come with?
2: Yeah, you know, th- there's a couple things that we hear often from our customers and and part of it comes down to what is the what is the pain that that particular business is feeling the most in that moment and the typical things that we hear you know one is often around just Overall uh, reliability of the the technology that they're using today, and and that reliability can fall short in a couple of ways. It might just be a matter of a, a system outage to the point of being on the cloud. Just because you're on the cloud actually creates, you know, in some cases, more risk for uh, servers to go down, and now customers can't get through to your contact center. Um, so that that from us, from a core ability standpoint, is to make sure that. That doesn't happen. That you've got a platform that has a level of redundancy built in. That hey, if, if something happens over in the west part of the U.S. or it, it doesn't matter, right? We've we've built redundancy into that. Um, what, what's interesting for us for businesses who need to make big changes, and so if you think that hey, for the past you know two years my demand was was down, and so I I scaled back my infrastructure, and now I've got just great, awesome, explosive, exponential growth. Uh, the ability for businesses to scale and have it sustained in the same way it would if you had 100 agents or if you had 1,000 or if you had 10,000 agents, that's one of the things that we've been able to deliver and demonstrate is that that just general ability to to flex up and down with your business as, as you see growth going on there. Um, but th- I mean, honestly, like, there's lots of things that I get excited about from uh, Hey, these are core tenants, but th- the biggest thing to me goes back to the, this idea of being purpose built for the CRM, which, which I think is how, how contact centers are now able to address the fundamental reason that service goes wrong. Isn't every day because of an outage when an outage goes out, you know, it's, it's noticeable. Uh, it's, it's probably in the news. It's a big deal for people. Uh, the bigger problem for why do businesses struggle with customer experiences? Cause they don't get the little things right consistently and they don't get the little things right consistently because whoever that agent is can't actually see all of the information that they need or they're, they're acting off of old data. They thought the runway was really, you know, 2400 feet when it was only 2000, right? Whatever the situation was be that, that exact same thing that, you know, some of the points you guys were calling out as we talked about the news. That same thing is happening with contact centers, you know, a majority of the interactions that they're having with customers. And so that to me is why it's so important and why when businesses look at UJet, they recognize this is actually going to enable us to pull our channels together in one place to see data from one source of truth. And then they know interaction after interaction after interaction, it's going to be that consistent, predictable experience that's how you scale success. It's not through one heroic thing. It's that showing up in every interaction.
0: What kind of resources do the agents have? Uh, they must have um, scripts or do they have uh, systems where they can put in, you know, start to put in keywords as they're parsing the, the, the request from the, from the customer and it, it presents, the, you know, how does that work? What, what do they have to work with the agents?
2: Yeah, you'll see them navigating a, a variety of different systems. Last time I did the research on this, the average agent was was in seven different tools to handle one customer interaction. Wow. Uh, I, was, I was speaking to someone the other day who said, they said one of the, the businesses they worked with had 70 tools that uh, an agent could potentially go into. And... The the challenge with that, as with anything, is if I start my initial onboarding is, you know, on average, say six weeks. And in those six weeks, I'm learning technologies, but I'm also learning, hey, here's our process around a new reservation. Here's how we do cancellations. here's how we do, you know, if somebody needs to change their flight, all of those types of things. And maybe there's a knowledge base. So a tool that I can go to for information. Maybe it's a binder. Maybe it's my notes from training. And they're having to navigate all of these things. That's another, you know, technical component of this that for contact centers and, and for you in particular, we're trying to, to think of how do we take all of that data that exists again so that if, you know, Max is my agent, I can, you know, based off of all of the interactions that have happened before, bring something to Max that says, hey, based off of what we just detected in the the words that the, the person spoke, you know, while they were in the IVR waiting to get to you. We we think this is going to help you best serve this customer, and and so that type of intelligence that, and that's part of where you know contact centers are seeing AI play a bigger role. Yeah, that's is, where I was going to ask. Right? That. Yeah. How do you help agents you know better understand and serve customers? It's fascinating. So
0: where do you think this is uh, is going? What does the future look like for contact centers?
2: Yeah, you know so. We, we are going to see more and more get automated. I think that's, uh, you know, and, and there's lots of opinions on that for better or worse. Um, we are going to see more and more automation. And I think there's two big drivers of that. One is we are by and large, people we do want to help ourselves, right? I, I, most of us are wired that way. And so when done right it actually does drive better satisfaction and engagement. I love when I get the notification, like I don't waste my time in line. I don't pick up the phone. I go right in my app and I find the next flight. If I know that we're delayed, that's easy. I love doing that. When it doesn't work, yeah, then I get frustrated. So so I think helping customers help themselves is is going to be a key part of the automation story. And of course, there's going to be cost benefits. Here's the thing that We alluded to it earlier, but this is the bigger, if we think about what's going to happen in five or 10 years from now, if we get this right with data, we are going to be able to better predict not just that, uh, you know, Max, you gave the example of, hey, your gate changed and you got this reactive text message, which is awesome, but it was reactive. Right. What would have been even more interesting is what data points does the airline have available to before that gate change ever even has to happen to make some predecisions and be able to be proactively thinking about what's coming up next? Or maybe they're able to see, hey, this is the third weekend of June and every year for the past 10 years, Max has booked a trip with us the third weekend of June and you get an email a week before the third weekend in june max we've got a special available right this is this is the type of stuff that could be not just preventing frustration it could be upselling you know to to other you know features or benefits there's all sorts of use cases here but i think that that's the interesting shift is most of these businesses are primarily inbound today and I think there's a real potential for an inflection point where most of what they're doing is proactive outbound work to to be thinking about what's what's coming up, not 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 looking back.
0: All right. Any other points that uh, Justin that you'd want us to uh, to be aware of?
2: You know, I, I think the big thing in particular in in, in terms of airlines. So if I, if I'm listening to this and and you know I'm trying to figure out like what. What is next for me? You know, what are the the key things? Like this is where the, the, the first place I go is, I mean, look at, look at voice of customer. We talked a bit about surveys today. Your customers are telling you what, what they want more of, what they're frustrated with. And I, I think one of the best things uh, a business can do is it's, it's a, like a customer journey exercise. And it's like, Hey, think about the typical reservation journey and, and what happens points along the way? And do you know where there's friction? And, and I'm going to bet that you do right so then my challenge is what are you going to do about it?
0: Hmm. all right well ujet.cx uh, so that's u uh, j e t dot cx or cx uh, for for customer experience I assume That's uh, right yeah, little uh, industry terminology so that's a, a a place where folks can learn more about UJet. are there any other resources you can think of for people who are you know interested in this uh, in this topic of uh, contact centers?
2: This is what I get excited about all day, every day. Isn't just telling the UGIT story, but you know, as, as we talked about at the beginning, I, I came from running contact centers and then I, I've been a trainer the bigger part of my career. That is what I focus my team on outside of talking about like, look, we could talk about tools and technology all day, every day. I'm more focused on what are the things keeping you up at night and what are the the real experiences from people who are going through exactly what you're going through. So that's, that's what I'd say. You know, if, if you're looking for tools and resources and get, you know, to get, to get connected, come to the UGIT website, but also just reach out, you know, we're, we're here mo- most importantly to help just contact center leaders lead well. Uh, so if, if we can get connected to do that, you know, I think that'd be a great start.
0: Fantastic. Justin, thanks so much. It's been a really fascinating conversation. I always love it when we discover kind of little pockets of of aviation that uh, are, are not what people normally think of. You know, people can think about, oh, should I be a pilot or an engine mechanic or something like that. But there are so many interesting little segments, little slices. I like to call them of of aviation uh, that um, really can represent career paths for for people. Who uh, who kind of resonate with that topic, and I think we've we've found another one with you, Justin. So thank you.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Max. And and you know, I'm going to mention quick because you said the career path that that I think is actually the interesting thing about the contact center. If I'm gonna be if I'm going to be in marketing or executive leadership or sales at, at a higher level within an airline, it's a great place to start yes. and understand what is your customer reality because then if you can take that. So bigger parts of the organization, I think there's opportunity to have tremendous impact.
0: I think that's a really, really powerful point, Justin. Yeah, excellent, excellent point. I think it's, do they still do this? Does UPS still make new managers or employees drive the truck for some period of time? I don't know. They used to, I think anyway. But it's, I mean, kind of similar is that, if you're going to come into a company if you want a, a career in an industry understanding the fundamentals and particularly with respect to the customer the actual external customer is is just invaluable in your personal development as you you know as you progress through your career so I think that's uh that's a really good point yeah absolutely Justin
1: you know I have just one question comment which is dot uh, cx max do you know what country cx is justin you can't tell him
0: oh no i was going to look it up but i but i knew it was for a customer experience so i <laughs> but okay which uh... well
1: i had to look it up it's for christmas island which is no. way out in the uh, pacific any idea what the population is there no about 1400 people wow <laughs> so probably quite a few domains available i would imagine for people that want dot cx yeah
0: fascinating <laughs> Justin really does have a lot of passion there. You can really feel it, can't you?
1: No question about it. I was kind of wondering how he got into uh, you know, contact centers to begin one, but I guess that's a different story for a different day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I bet it is a good story. I bet it is. All right, speaking of good stories, our uh, aviation entrepreneurship and innovation correspondent, of course you know that's Hillel Glazier, has uh, another interview for us this episode. This is another one that he recorded at uh, EAA Air Venture Oshkosh 2022, and this is with Kevin LaRosa, who is a, well, he's a pilot, but he's also an aerial coordinator. And as you will hear, he has a lot of experience and he's uh, worked on a number of major films, including Top Gun Maverick. So why don't we listen to uh, Hillel and Kevin?
3: This is Hillel Glazer, innovation and entrepreneurship correspondent for the Airplane Geeks podcast with another installment of Beyond the Press Release. I'm here with and have the pleasure of speaking with Kevin LaRosa, aerial coordinator and stunt pilot with his own Hollywood brand, K2. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. So besides Top Gun, Kevin's work is also enjoyed with, on The Avengers and Iron Man, Transformers Last Night. And over a hundred other projects. Have you been to Air Venture before? This is my
4: very first time. We have to take your your pilot credentials away from you at this point. Really? Is this involved in a uh, a violation? There's a violation
3: of something out there. Someone's going to come. Talk to my lawyer. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I I think this is this isn't going to work from here on out. I'm not sure why we're talking to you. Um, No, for seriously though. uh, So Kevin was obviously very instrumental in the making of the movie Top Gun: Maverick, and uh, I don't want to get it to a lot of questions about the movie uh it's probably a bit tiresome for you to to keep talking about it and you've answered them a million times in a million other places maybe that's
4: a relief i i don't know hopefully it's uh it's fun for me to talk about because it was an epic adventure and i love that people are interested in it not only just the movie but how we did it and the people that i did it with so i love talking about it that's great
3: uh, yeah, we're, we love hearing about it, too. So that's kind of why I said, ooh, opportunity to talk to you.
4: That'd be great. That's awesome. Um, and by the way, let me digress. This is my first time at AirVenture you brought up, and, and I didn't get to tell you, but this is it's mind-boggling how many people, aviation fans and fanatics and professionals, it's incredible, this place. I, mean, I, I can't recommend it enough if you've never been here. You got to hit a bare venture. It's just it's uh, it's something you have to see with your own eyes. But just want to put that out there. Thanks for
3: saying that. You're absolutely right. In fact, because the folks who have never come here, they have no idea. They just can't. They, you can't wrap your head around. Have you been out to Warbirds? Oh, we were trying to hit everything. I've Been here for three days, and I still haven't seen everything. Okay. So Warbirds is by itself epic. When you get there in the morning or in the evening, and it's a sea of of. You know P fifty ones and Corsairs and everything from World War Two. Just to see, it looks like a look. It looks like a. a an air base in the uk yeah it it's does. it's just incredible yeah you have to and you have to come back next time uh you come you know you can't really get enough of it the stuff that you'll see here you'll never see anywhere else yeah i love it so ask a couple questions compared to other projects that involved the same kinds of flying packages that you used in maverick how would you say filming for maverick was compared to these other projects that used the same gear was it was there a lot more going on was it just the, the push the edge on everything
4: or was it right in the middle of your comfort zone quite simply put top gun maverick utilized aerial production gear that had never existed before from the cameras to the lenses to the jet platforms that we built for the movie into uh, the type of flying and the limits to which we pushed that gear had never been done in the past so that right there that first sentence should tell you that we were we were scratching the surface of something that just hadn't been realized before as far as technology is concerned but technology is one part of it but then you need the skill of the people and i feel like the cast and crew that was brought in to make that movie was just the best of the best everything from ground photography uh to my department the aerial department just absolutely industry professionals um and everybody knew that we were making a very profound movie so everybody put their uh, blood sweat and tears in this project and it shows on the big screen
3: absolutely does um there's the people that have not seen it who are here at air ventures are practically pariahs <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah
3: so um as anyone who's read anything about the movie should have learned by now uh, it's of course seeing it a lot of work as you just mentioned went into getting the audience as close to the action and as much of a real flying experience as you could possibly get without actually flying or throwing up um so in order to capture the realism of the Navy flying, would you and your aircraft have to also get into unusual attitudes or
4: any kind of weird flight conditions, or were you able to do that from a much more stable perspective? Uh, we were always in unusual attitudes where we, where we needed to be. Uh, it's all about putting the camera in the right spot. Um, and Joe Kaczynski, our incredible director, really wanted to give the audience a visceral thrill ride. So we did that. We had to think of the most energetic, dynamic shots Uh, that we can put those aircraft into and that we can put the camera jets into Um, you know I I remember all too often we were running these canyons at 100 feet AGL or lower uh, and you know maximizing every little bit of speed and energy and sunlight we could to just make the best shot possible Wow. wow sounds incredible we'll get into that a little bit It's said that for
3: about every minute of aired video, no matter what you're shooting, it takes about eight minutes of production, or maybe 80, maybe 800. uh, So this is a two-part question about the same thought. First, about how much time would you say went into planning and practicing for a shot compared to what you actually flew it and flew it in order to go capture that
4: shot? Months of planning, weeks of prepping, and all dialed into about a two hour long brief before we went on our mission and about an hour debrief. Wow.
3: And then the mission itself could have been minutes or just an An hour or two?
4: Typically about an hour and a half to two hours and that was a morning sortie and we would always do morning and afternoon because we want that beautiful low light. Right. So this other part of the question is about roughly how many hours of video did you actually
3: capture in those runs compared to the minutes, not even hours, that ended up in the final cut.
4: I'll defer to what I heard Joe Kaczynski say, about 800 hours of aerial footage, that includes Ground to air mounted cameras, both internal and external on the F eighteen Super Hornets, as well as the helicopter stuff from from what I flew and the jet work. Wow. So you've been
3: at this a while, shifting gears a little bit. At what point did you realize that you really can't rely on off the shelf stuff to get done what you wanna get done and that you end up having to build, construct you know, design, construct and rig up your own filming equipment?
4: In 2014, I was on a movie with Tom Cruise, and we were walking back to base camp together, and he said, Kev, you know, one day we're going to make Top Gun, and it's all got to be real, and it's all got to be better than anything that's ever seen before. And that resonated with me, and it stuck with me. Um, And in 2016, I made a rendering of a new jet that I wanted to create, which eventually became the Cinejet, uh thanks to some great partners that i brought in the patriot jet team as well as helenet and shot over uh and that was the first jet that we put to use on the movie that allowed us to tell that epic story um i knew from 2014 when tom told me that that we didn't have the right tools yet we had older technology that was partially stabilized and didn't have the ability to carry the newest camera and lens um so we went to work trying to figure out how to make that happen and uh Luckily, with those partners I mentioned, we built some pretty great platforms, including another jet called the Phenom, which is a business jet, Phenom 300. Uh, my good friend Jonathan Spano owns that and built it into a camera jet, again, for the movie Top Gun. And I basically had you know, the helicopter and two jets at my disposal to choose the right job and the right mission for each individual platform. Um, the, they all have their pros and cons, but I knew back then we needed that type of technology. So, can you provide maybe
3: since this is obviously an audio podcast and uh, our, we have a lot of gear, geeks to listen to it, for a sense of uh, tangibility? What were the kind of challenges that um, you had that you couldn't do? The, what what was, the, was that? What was the problems that Tom Cruise said that's not going to work for the next thing we want to do? So, what would what would be something that wouldn't work that you were, you got it to work this time, but what you had before just wasn't going to cut it? Like what kind of example?
4: Uh, I think the energy uh, in which we wanted to fly and put that camera, you know, in a semi-stabilized system in the old Lear jets and uh, you know, the periscope systems that were used, you couldn't rock the controls. You couldn't yank those jets around without tumbling the camera or making the image look unstable. So we needed a gimbal that could sit on the front of a jet and get in there and let us fly hard to stay in formation next to the F-18s that were performing these maneuvers and not tumble and be stabilized and be able to hold the best cameras and that was the shot over gimbal that we chose and became heavily modified to be able to fly on jets Um, so that was something we recognized we just needed to get the audience closer to the action and a better quality image and shot over was the gimbal that the new technology went into the sony venice camera that we used and the fujinon lenses Um, But then we needed the jet platforms. And the L-39, although a little underpowered, is a great performer. And it's very maneuverable, have great visibility, and it got me in places we couldn't get before. Yeah,
3: there are a bunch of those out here in the Warbird area. There's a lot
4: of them, you know, and they're such great airplanes. They're super reliable. Um, You know, they're a little underpowered for what we want. But it's an energy momentum airplane, in my opinion. Um, I was able to fly in form with the F-18s when that was required, and I was also able to help sell speed in differential platforms. Typically, we're always having them light the burners and rip by camera anyway, so that was just a great way to show the speed of the aircraft.
3: Now, I noticed in your uh, website that uh, um, the gimbals hanging off the nose, more or less, or just on in front of the main, in front of the nose gear, right? right. Um, did that create any kind of limitations on how many Gs you could pull and turn out the rate, turn rates or anything like that?
4: And sure did yeah so there was two different testing phases one for the structural limits of the jet and the camera mount on the nose the other for the actual gimbal um, the limitations that were put in place were 350 knots and 3Gs. That's what I was limited to, and we were there all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, to get to 350 knots in the L39 with the camera, usually that's only going to happen in a dive. Mm-hmm. That's not sustained-level flight. Right. But typically, we were always up against our, our limits, and, and it's very real-world to say that our people and our equipment were always operating at the edge of what uh, we could do.
3: So do you, um, with your designs... And uh, what you've already created is that now something that you sell or license to other cinematographers, or they're not interested in, or do you have no read to, or is you know it's pretty incredible what you're able to do with that.
4: Oh, thank you. No, I think I, I think the platforms that we use and have available to us are are uh, they're sort of one-offs that we tend to modernize, and every so years, many years, you know, we're going to try to build the next best jet. Um, I know there's a lot of people that are getting more into jet photography as technology gets better and more readily available. Um, I've been doing jet-to-jet photography for approximately 15 years, um, and I think it's a little bit more about the, the individual and less about the technology. You know, there's a skill set and experience uh, that comes with being able to coordinate and direct and be able to put those aerial shoots together and fly them. Um, there's a lot better jet pilots than me. There's, there's L-39 pilots that have eons more experience than I do um, in those aircraft my little niche skill set is flying the camera platform understanding angles and light and backlighting and camera movement and and compression that's i think where i excel as a pilot and aviator and and film you know storyteller
3: but now that you've exposed the world to what's possible do you see demand for that kind of capability growing
4: yeah actually that's a good segue into this next movie devotion that comes out in, in thanksgiving and i think when i got the call to work on that movie with my glenn, my friend glenn powell's uh one of the mains in it um it was hey we know what you guys did on top gun maverick and we want that same vibe we want that same realism and practical stunt flying in devotion So to answer your question, yeah, I think there's a profound interest in the motion picture business to go real, practical flying. CGI is fantastic and technology is great. And it's when used properly to enhance real photography, I think that's what the audience loves. Knowing what they're watching on the big screen is actually real flying, real pilots, real Gs. um, And if there's CGI enhancements, to me, that's acceptable versus full CGI aircraft, which is obviously against what i do for a living yeah well
3: hopefully uh, as far as the uh, av- geek universe is concerned uh, Maverick will have caused the world to want more aviation films and real, realistic yeah. we all certainly hope that's yeah, the that case be, sell a lot of them here at Oshkosh what kind of things did you learn shooting Maverick that you then applied to devotion there was a couple of year gap in there between the film of the two yeah. uh, movies so what kind of do you have any examples of things oh okay we know going next time we're going to do this or or oh this is so much easier now that we've done it before kind of, any kind of lessons
4: well there was technology updates you know, t- Shotover made some updates to the camera gimbal for better stabilization, better GPS signal. We made some enhancements to the Synerget, uh as far as the operating station and, and uh, the controls in the back for the aerial director photography who's operating the camera. And I, and I got to point that out, is that in an aerial coordinator capacity, I am in charge of the aerials. But when I go into my camera pilot capacity, I'm only doing half the work. The other gentleman that's with me, typically it's Michael Fitzmaurice or David Knoll. Those are the ones that are actually operating the gimbal, composing the shot. So it's really a 50-50 thing when I'm flying the camera birds. Um, but we did, we did learn lessons. You know, it's, it's also interesting when new technology is sometimes when you're using it, you see things you didn't even know it was capable of. And I think on Top Gun Maverick that happened. We'd go do something and go, wow, I've never seen that before. I've never seen one shoot it that way before. We took all those cool menu items that we dreamt up or learned on Top Gun and we applied them to Devotion and did some cool stuff there. Well, that's a lot better than having the what's it doing now effect. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I can tell you on Devotion, uh, the director, J.D. Dillard, had a a dream shot of just staring into the engine cowling of a Corsair, um, just putting the audience right up against the hub basically in flight Um, and we built a new camera that mounted on the back of the L39. It wasn't stabilized, it was hard mounted, but the L39 is a very smooth airframe flying jet Um, and we would put those Corsairs right behind us. So There was a couple new toys and new things we did on Devotion that we didn't have on top now. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, I know all all of the geeks that I know are really keen on seeing Devotion and knowing that you're, you're part of the foot, you know, you were the same role in Devotion as you did in Maverick.
4: Same same camera operator, too. Michael Fitzmaurice, the aerial director of photography. So basically, your same Top Gun team rolling into Devotion.
3: Okay, so now you're just making that easy <laughs> <laughs> to go do it. Um, so, besides flying planes with cameras under them, um, what other kind of services do you and K2 or CineJet provide?
4: Uh, well, Synaget's purely just a tool in the shed uh, of the aircraft that I have available to me to use on on my productions. In um, a big, giant, encompassing thirty thousand foot view down as an aerial coordinator, uh, you know I'm in charge of the budgeting of the aerials, and bringing together the team and the right tools to do the job, the right camera assets or picture ships, the FAA you know permissions and uh, the ATC coordinations. That's my main job to make sure that productions come to me with the creative, and we give them kind of a turnkey service to make it happen, yeah. uh, safe, legally, and obviously make it look better than ever. And yeah,
3: so- we skipped your bio earlier because we can all read about that, but uh, just for the sake of those that are not going to do the reading, and you've been doing this since you were like twelve, <laughs> so if that's almost accurate, if not actually accurate, so, um, and you're you're no longer twelve, so. No, no, it's, I'm getting old. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Um, but the. Uh, but so you've got a lot of experience that you can you know do all this stuff in. Just for I'm
4: I'm lucky that I was a second generation aerial coordinator and stunt pilot, so I got to grow up on movie sets watching my dad do it. I learned a lot of valuable lessons, learned a lot of insight. He's one of my idols, so is Clay Lacey and some other very prominent aviation figures. Um, but I think I've just gotten a lot of lessons that I've applied to what I am today. I've known since a young age that. I was going to be an aviator. I wanted to be a pilot, but I wanted to be this. I wanted to be an aerial coordinator and motion picture pilot since I was a little kid. Um, you know, the funny thing is my parents tell me they, they knew right. it from me when I was a young age, too. Most people fly little hand toys and model airplanes and make noise. And I flew right. with a video camera in my hand taking <laughs> pictures of another airplane. Like, that was my dream from That's being a kid. Awesome. So many
3: listeners also listen to the other podcasts that you've been on and republications that you've been in. We've heard some fun stories about shooting the approach to the carrier and the the COs, like, we do that a little faster, closer. Um, Do you have any uh, other fun stories that you can share that's not that one because you've told it a (laughs) hundred times?
4: Yeah, you know, new technology lessons learned. There's a really fun one I like. Uh, There's a particular sequence in Top Gun Maverick where... Uh, there's a jet that G's out. Somebody goes in a G-lock, right? I don't know if that's a spoiler or not. Maybe I just did. But um, to to, to film that, um, we had an F-18 doing a slow dive to the ground, and we wanted to film it practically, like everything in Top Gun. So I needed to stick the camera jet behind this F-18 that was doing this beautiful slow roll towards the Earth. Um, And to do that, we figured out the best way to enter it was basically to bunt, or we'd both push over together and get the deck angle we wanted, and then he would start executing the roll, and I'd basically keep the Phenom. We used the Phenom on that particular sequence uh, right in between his wake. So he was rolling around in front of me, and I kind of stuck right in the center of mm-hmm. where his center point would be. Um, when we first did that, the, the the Phenom's a cool business jet. It's got leather seats and a cool mini bar, and we'd always have Red Bulls and coffee and stuff in the back. And we're not used to that kind of luxury. So the first time I pushed that Phenom over behind that F-18 and went to the negative G limit. Everything emptied itself, and I remember being drenched with ice water. And you know, you're in the middle of the move, and I'm tucked into an F-18. So you know, we're not going to abort for that. <laughs> but I remember uh, there was a moment of floating ice cubes in water, and uh, we learned some lessons there about how to prep the Phenom to do high performance flying. It's funny, one of our regulars it sounded like that.
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was well timed. Thank you. Um, one of our regulars actually flew a Phenom very flight. recently just fractional type of guy. So, yep. um, so you'd probably get a kick out of that. So we, we all know that Hollywood career isn't exactly all roses and cash in hand, but uh, you sure make
4: it look like you're living the dream. So are you, as much as it seems like, like really living the dream? <laughs> uh, I love the flying. Um, I love that every job is different, and I love turning storyboards into reality, and I love seeing the audience react when they see aviation on the big screen. From an aviation lover when the world is excited about aviation or something that is really fun for me. Um, I'll tell you that the job is uh, feast or famines, right? So it's a lot of times there's very, there's a lot of work and sometimes it's slow. And I try to use those slow times to balance my life and be with family. Um, the drawback to the job is sometimes we travel a lot. We go away for months at a time. We travel around the world. So the schedule is sporadic. It's hard to plan vacations. You really have to have a love for the business because, uh, the quality of life, you end up being best friends with a lot of people you work with and, and travel with them, um, and you don't have a lot of time to really just take off and go do what you want to do. When you get the call for something exciting, you really got to try to find a way to make it avail- yourself available.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's that side of the world, I mean, you know, the, the flying and the and the... All of the production pieces of it and the adventure, I'm sure, is very appealing. And despite how hard it is, I'm sure there's plenty of people who'd like to live vicariously through you. What's the, um, the best social media for them to follow or for, to find you?
4: Oh, thanks for that. Uh, I have an Instagram that I put a lot of my work on. It's K2LaRosa, so letter K, number two, and then my last name, L-A-R-O-S-A. Uh, And I throw some up on Facebook and just start a TikTok as well. But Instagram seems to be my mainstay where I like throwing the the behind-the-scenes stuff up.
3: In the off chance that this interview ends up in the hands of someone with enough money and interest time to throw your way, what's the best way to actually contact you and to get a hold of you to do some work and and to see examples?
4: Sure, yeah. I mean, you could DM me on uh, Instagram, but if you want to email me, it's a really easy email. It's k2, letter K, number 2, at kevinlarosa.com.
3: Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know that we haven't covered or you're like, why didn't you ask me about this?
4: Nah, you know, I, I guess uh, for me, I'm just I try to be down to earth. I love aviation through and through and I love that I get to do filmmaking, too. Uh, if you ever see me or you want to reach out with some questions, I try to make time for as many people as I can. Uh, I love sharing the experiences that I've that I've gotten to do. And if someone has an interest in this business and I could help them understand how to do it or if they want to do it that's fun for me too could
3: you throw out the uh, web address again for us
4: uh for uh
3: for just your, your, your website
4: yeah oh uh, websites uh i think it's just www.k2larosa.com so we'll have that also in the show notes along with other information for them to get
3: a hold of you and to see stuff online so we'll make sure that's all in the show notes but um it's uh again once again thanks for taking the time to speak airplane geek's podcast at air venture
4: it's been my pleasure thanks for having me on thanks a lot kevin
0: All right. What's up with the geeks? I'm getting, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go on an extensive uh, cross-country trip. And a lot of times uh, I'll be out in the back country off, off the pavement, as they say. So what we've done is we have recorded, pre-recorded a number of interviews with uh, some really fascinating guests. And we'll be uh, putting those into the feed in the coming weeks. Now, sometimes we may be or I may be at a place that has Internet um, and uh, on a Monday when we usually record and we'll get the whole gang together and other times um, that may not be possible. So we'll just uh, put the interview into the feed. So in the next, well, in the upcoming weeks, just be aware that uh, you may see some format changes, but we want to keep bringing you great content. And uh, we've been really busy recording uh, interviews with a number of interesting aviation folks. So that's my what's up with the geeks. Max Trescott, what's up with you?
1: Boy, busy, 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 busy. I mean, I think everyone knows that summer is the busiest time for GA flying. Uh, the days are long. People try and fit as many flight lessons in as possible. Uh, and I've certainly been <laughs> experiencing that. So it's been tough sometimes just finding a day off. Uh, but I've had a couple of trips, which trips are always interesting and gotta break things up a little bit and, uh, you know, add some, uh, you know, it's just variety to the, to the mix. So I'm just back, uh, a week ago from a trip to Knoxville, where I went to help a new owner, bring his vision jet back to California so um, there was kind of something interesting in terms of not the flight back but the getting to uh, to Knoxville Uh, From California, there are no non-stops to uh, Knoxville. You have to change flights somewhere. So I've been to Knoxville, oh man, a dozen or more times over the last few years. And most of the time, I end up changing in Dallas-Fort Worth. Sometimes it's Atlanta, Charlotte, or Denver are the places that I've changed. And I would say that uh, it seems like at least half those flights, something you know, goes wrong. Uh, It usually it ends up me getting in extremely late, you know, sometimes in the wee hour of the morning. And of course, then I have to wake up on East Coast time. So when I get up, you know, at seven o'clock East Coast time, it's still four o'clock, but I got in really late. It's just not fun. Uh, And so what I did this time, I I came up with a a different solution that I'm going to recommend to listeners. Um I have found the one flight a day from San Francisco to Nashville. And I thought, you know what? I like direct flights and I don't mind driving. And so I flew to Nashville, drove two and a half hours, and ended up getting in a couple hours before I normally would get in. And it was a beautiful drive and it was relaxing. So Wonderful. I think I'm going to use that strategy more in the future. I've always tried to go for uh nonstop flights because I just I really abhor the you know the boarding process and all the, you know, pulling the stuff out of the overhead and doing it again. So I just don't like having to do a connecting flights. So I'll see if I can uh, work that strategy more in the future. And yeah, I think for, um, you know, destinations that are, I'll just pick a number, five hours away, it's like, you know what? I'd almost rather drive than than fly anyway. Uh, and so I'm just trying to apply this strategy to avoid connecting flights in the future. But I do have a trip coming up to uh, New Jersey sometime within the, the next week or two, bringing a relatively new, just a couple-year-old uh, Turbo 206 back across the country with a client of mine who just bought it. So that will be fun. I lived in New Jersey for about seven years, so it'll be fun to get back in the state there and uh, just kind of see some of the old stomping grounds. The airport I'll be going in to is not terribly far from uh, the two airports that I used to uh, fly out of. So mm. that should be a fun trip. And of course, I'm going to bring the, uh, the GoPro cameras. I've uh, put together my, my Go Bag. It's actually my GoPro bag, which has <laughs> <just laughs> three cameras and uh, all the cables and recording equipment that, uh, that I need. So I'll probably be doing some uh, videos for uh, Patreon supporters, the people that support the Aviation News Talk Show. So that should be fun.
0: Great. I'm curious, how do you get connected with clients that want to have you accompany them or ferry their plane back? Or is that a trade secret that you don't want to talk about?
1: <laughs> no, I think it's just mostly uh, word of mouth. This one's unusual in that it's a 206. Uh, 90% or more of the time, it's a Cirrus aircraft that I'm bringing back, and I just, since I spent almost all my time teaching in Cirrus, people know me for that and know that I do these flights across the country. Oddly, most of the time, it's local people here who I happen to know who are buying an airplane, but occasionally it's somebody on the other side of the country who's uh, buying an airplane that's on the the West Coast, and they just happen to hear my name somewhere.
0: Wow. Well, if I buy a Cirrus
1: at some point in the future, I'll call on you to uh, help me out. Give me Well, good. Buy one on the opposite end of the country so yeah, i will have a good yeah. long flight. I mean, don't, don't buy one close to you. That's no fun. No, no. Far away
0: is better. All right. We'll this mention one piece of listener mail. This came in from Jacob. He sent a link, he said, to a website he found online. It has interesting facts about our friends at the Boeing company, and this is top 10 things you probably don't know about Boeing and it, there's also a video in that piece uh which is 15 things you you didn't know about Boeing so uh some of them are, are overlapping but maybe this is where i saw the number of uh the part count in the different airplanes
1: you know it might have been in here that i saw that interesting it is i just found it you did so oh. the 787 dreamliner approximately 2.3 million parts Whoa, even the more than i 7 only has 400,000 parts.
0: That's just mind-blowing. That's just yeah, it is. totally, totally mind-blowing. Yeah, but there's some interesting things in there. There's some things that uh, a lot of people will, especially those who follow Boeing closely, will will be aware of. But there are some things that weren't known by me. Uh, for, and then there's some, some trivia that's kind of fun, like the number of switches in the cockpit of a 747. Apparently there are 365 switches in the cockpit (laughs) of a 747. 365. That's just mind-blowing.
1: That is so sad. I often tell folks that with the uh, Vision Jet, that what I love about the layout is that there are so few switches. And I think when the seven forty seven was built, the engineering mentality at the time was, "Hey, there's an empty little blank space we can put a switch there," <laughs> a switch. and they just you know filled up the entire uh, cockpit. Whereas uh, with the Vision Jet, the philosophy was for a switch to become a switch, it had to earn the right to be a switch. And so virtually all the switches are now uh, touchscreen things that you access through a a common panel. And that just cleans up the layout so much that uh, the cockpit from the pilot seat looks more like a luxury car where you've got Uh, You know, things that are in front of you that then kind of flow down uh, between the two uh, seats, kind of like center console. And you don't have every every corner of the airplane just cluttered up with switches. So I I thought it was a really great design philosophy.
0: Does a glass cockpit provide um, lower maintenance costs or, you know, less opportunity for
1: breakage or things to, to go wrong? I don't have any statistics on that. My gut instinct is yes. Uh, simply because I see so few failures in a new aircraft. I would say the failure that I used to see most commonly in the older aircraft that I flew all the time before the glass cockpits were electrical system failures of one kind or another. And boy, uh, these these almost never occur on the newer airplanes. Plus, the newer airplanes have redundant electrical systems anyway. So if, right. even if one happened, you have a have a backup system. So yeah, I would say that the uh, the MTBF, uh, you know, the meantime between failure has to be better on the new glass cockpit aircraft. And I would imagine that the parts count is also lower because so many of the things that were separate dials and switches are just integrated within one subsystem, you know, one glass display.
0: Yeah, makes sense. All right. Well, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We want to thank our our guest this episode. That was Justin Robbins from ujet.cx ujet.cx check them out. Uh, we really appreciate uh, Justin coming on the show. And you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The show notes for this episode, well, of course, we have a permanent redirect link that's easy to remember if you're trying to find the show notes. So that's com slash 714. Our email address is thegeeks at com.
1: All right. So, Max, anything closing? Oh, I would just say anybody who is uh, interested in getting in touch with me or listening to my general aviation safety-related podcast, Aviation News Talk, just head out to aviationnewstalk.com. If you want to send an email, just click on contact at the top of the page. Cool. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me
0: at 30,000feet.com. And uh, just check out that. You can, if you uh, would like to, there's an aviation podcast directory there. Actually, there's a separate URL that redirects to my 30,000 feet site, which is, guess what, aviationpodcastdirectory.com. So that's easy to remember. Hopefully that link still works. I haven't checked that in a while. Probably should. So please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep
1: the blue side up. And thanks for listening.